I'm going to start reading from verse 13. Jesus, as he meets this woman at the well, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, he's speaking of himself, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, I'm sorry, in verse 13 he was speaking of the well water, now he's speaking of himself, verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that it may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, It's kind of interesting how she changes the subject here. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we've been looking for the last, really, couple of months of details of salvation. For the last couple of weeks, this divine appointment that the Lord had with this unnamed woman who was at the well. The Lord knew that he needed to travel through a place that a Jew would not usually travel through, Samaria. But God has divine appointments. He's had a divine appointment with everybody here who calls himself a born-again believer. So the keys to understanding chapter 4, really, in this interaction, the foundation for them are really seen in a couple of previous verses First of all, in chapter 2, verse 25, speaking of the Lord, he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Lord knows who we are. The Lord knows exactly who this woman is. He knew exactly who Nicodemus was. Verse 36, he, and this is in chapter 3, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So the Lord knows all, all are open to him, and all, at some point, need to make that, well, he told Nicodemus, you need to be born again, you need to exercise that faith that will bring salvation. The first word in chapter 4, therefore, are based upon that which we have previously seen, he's giving us another example. Anytime you see the word therefore, read what was before the therefore, and you'll get a good idea on why it is therefore. So this woman at the well, we see, well, we see how an unbeliever comes to belief. This should be something that we should all relate to again if we are truly born again. Now, in the book of Romans chapter 3, we see a, a biblical concept, depravity of man. It tells us the depths of our depravity and how we are completely and totally, apart from Christ, void of spiritual understanding. Now, 
how many of us, considering the depravity of man, think of yourself in an unsaved state. You did not have the knowledge of the gospel. You did not have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day that you were saved, did you wake up and think, I need to get right with God through a right relationship with Jesus Christ? You probably, did anybody do that? I don't think anybody did that. I know I didn't do that. It's somebody that that spoke the, the word of God. And then this torrents of living water entered into my life. And my life was radically changed. Not by me. This was a work of God. I was like the woman of the well. I was immersed in sin. Don't look down on me. You were too. Romans chapter 3 tells me that none of you guys were any good. None of us were apart from Christ. We were sinners. We were lost in our sin. We were living according to our senses. If it made me feel good, I did it. If I could get something from somebody, I would use them. And even though I may be, have been considered by society as a good man, I was a very selfish man. We were all selfish people. The commonality between Nicodemus and this woman of the well, though, none of them, neither of them, understand spiritual things. Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And the same thing with this woman at the well. The woman said to him, Sir, this is after he said he would give her living water, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that the natural man does not receive of the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they know him, because they are spiritually discerned. And so, the natural man, again, a better term than natural, would be sensual. Somebody who just guides his life according to what he sees, he feels, and so on and so forth. And, but he cannot perceive the things of God. So you've got a problem here. Everybody is born from the womb. We saw it in chapter 3 again. We're born condemned. We're all born natural people. And, and I cannot discern the things of the Lord, and so something's got to happen. Something's got to transpire in our life. And so that's what we've been looking at in the last two chapters, this relationship between the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that empowers the Word of God. And again, salvation salvation is a work of God. Yeah, I definitely have to believe. Do we have a choice? This makes no sense to me unless we have a choice. I know how many times that I refuse salvation, but nonetheless, God worked upon me and God gave me the ability to even believe. Now, as we saw last week, in order to have an understanding, must man, a man must come and drink of these living waters. He must partake of that which is offered to him. Living waters is that which proceeds from God's representative by the Word of God through the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ and the necessity that man has for salvation. And so the living waters, they flow through God's people. And so I have this opportunity as living waters came into my life. How? Somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit spoke the Word of God. If you're a born-again believer, there can be no denying this. You should be able to have a clear understanding. That's why the, the, the natural man doesn't understand. He doesn't have the Spirit. But as far as you, who've come into the kingdom of heaven, these things that we're reading about here in John chapters 3 and chapter 4, you should kind of be an aha moment every time. Yeah, that, that's how it worked with me. Yeah, that's what happened. Or, or maybe even the next step in maturity. Yeah, I've seen that happen when I've spoken the gospel to people. 
just the Lord kind of just guided me and told me to open my mouth, and I did, and, and this living water came out, and I saw lives transformed right before me. And so again, the Lord is setting standards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're spoke, or is spoken of, we're told of, the spiritual giftings that come upon man, that the Lord gives to mankind. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Now, there's plenty of people out there that say they have an anointing. They, they seem to, a lot of false teachers seem to, 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 to like that term or whatever. But here's some of the things that they say, and they're absolutely contrary to the Word of God. And so, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. Now, they may not say Jesus is a curse, but as they pervert the Word of God, they're doing the same thing. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can mouth the words, Jesus is Lord, but you cannot deliver it from the heart. It can't be that living water that is going to change lives. So again, we see the necessity of the Holy Spirit. So what did God do? God gifted us with gifts. These are spiritual gifts that are designed for the work of ministry. It goes on through the rest of the chapter. We're not going to go there. But each and every person here who is a born-again believer, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I just assumed you all are. If not, we can change that tonight. And you're alive. Everybody looks fairly alive. You have been gifted with a spiritual gift to exercise for the glory of God in the kingdom of heaven. And even more than that, your gift, if this is your church, your gift is essential for this church. Without you exercising your gift in this church, however menial you may think it is, it's essential for what God wants to do in this church. And if you're holding back, well, then that's going to be, you've got to give the threat here. If you're holding back, repent, sinner. If you're holding back, then that's going to be between you and the Lord. But again, we so need, crave, desire, whatever it might be, whatever it is that you're able to deliver to the work of God through how God, now again, when I say how God has gifted you, through the supernatural ability. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a supernatural ability. So, just taking it down to a way that's very visual and understandable, you have two people that volunteer for a cleaning ministry. The only thing left is to vacuum the stage. i got to choose between one. Who do I want to vacuum the stage? A person that's going to vacuum the stage in the flesh? Or the person that's going to vacuum the stage by the supernatural power of God? Well, I say it like that, but I want the supernatural person. And what I mean by that is, He's been gifted, and so as he's exercising his gifting, you're going to see the spiritual. Now, maybe the only thing that he's going to be doing different than the natural man as he's vacuuming, he's going to be praying for people's salvation. He's going to be praying for the worship team that's on there, that's going to be ministering to the congregation. He's going to be preach, uh, ministering to, or praying for the preacher who's behind the pulpit. And again, there's got to be that necessary spiritual aspect. Because, you know, there's people that can do good things according to the flesh or, you know, pleasing things or whatever it might be. But I want somebody who's able to do whatever it is that they do and the Lord. And another thing is we come up after and the carpet's still not very clean. 
but if this person was given of their service to the Lord, it was never about the carpet being vacuumed. It was about the person exercising the spiritual gifting. And so again, we're not a corporation, we're not a company, we're a church. A church, a place that people come to exercise their spiritual giftings for the glory of God. And then they take it out of here and exercise it outside these walls for the glory of God. The very essence of belief is to hear the gospel preached through the power of the Holy Spirit, then for the unbeliever to be brought to the point of understanding and decision by that very same Spirit. In the book of Acts, you have a pretty good picture of this occurring. Turn over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. The Philippian jailer. Now, keep in mind, this guy's responsible. He's responsible for everybody who is in that jail to his superiors. Matter of fact, if one of those guys should escape, then he would have to pay the punishment. He would have to absorb the punishment that that person was going to have to take. So if somebody was condemned to death and they escaped, then he would be condemned to death. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns and God in the prison, and, uh, to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. So he understood the punishment that was due him. But what you need to see in this jailer is the same thing that you did all of your life. Everybody that tried to share the gospel before you were saved, you threw them in jail. You bound them in chains because you just didn't want to hear what they had to say. But then there came that part, that place, that time in life that you knew that something needed to be changed. You knew the condemnation that was hanging over you. Verse 28, but Paul. Now, what's going to make the difference? Where's the turning point? Well, it's always in the Lord, but it's through the person that the Lord desires to use. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And it's kind of a neat thing. I beat them figuratively. I imprisoned them figuratively. I chained them. But when I needed that witness, they were still there. Those faithful people in your life that continued to pray, continued to minister, and continued to share. Now prayerfully, you're a person, even though you get beaten, even though you're jailed and chained by those people who you like to see saved, don't give up. Never quit. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, we are still here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This man realized, not really understanding everything, but something's going on here. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't know, but I really believe through the witness of Paul and Silas, he understood at least maybe the necessity of salvation or maybe the reality of salvation. He wasn't saved, but I would imagine there were seeds planted. Verse 31, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, they didn't just say that and have him saved, because there's a key element that is missing here. You've got men, you've got men filled with the Holy Spirit, but then verse 32 brings the other element that's so necessary into the equation. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. 
There had to be the preaching of the Word of God. See, they said, get saved and believe. So you could have said, okay, well, I'm saved, I believe. But no, there was the necessity of the preaching of the Word of God. Verse 33, and then he took the same... He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. They were brought in, brought in to the kingdom of God. James Boyce, the commentator, says, Christianity begins by bringing people to the truth about their own depraved condition, but it does not so to convince them of their but it does so to convince them of their need of Jesus Christ and to prepare them for understanding who he is and what he has accomplished for them by his death and his resurrection. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what we have a sinner here. We have this woman at the well who's in dire need of a physician. So, verse 15, back in John chapter 4, the woman said to him, now he just told her about the necessity of receiving the water that she has, or he has. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Well, verse 15, we see what would be the logical response to the sensual person. I mean, she's not understanding these things. Here Jesus is, is telling her of all that she needs and all that she needs to have and what's available to her and what's her concern. I might be able to get some indoor plumbing here. I won't have to come and draw water anymore. You know, she's completely missing the point here. See, this is ignorance seeking to be satisfied, but not truly understanding. This is this person trying to perceive what is being said, but in actuality, what she's doing is she's looking according to her worldly needs. How can I make this life more comfortable rather than seeing eternal life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Original language lends a little bit more weight to that. For the message of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. It's where we get the word for moron. And the idea is the message of the cross, our philosopher dies. Well, the world would say, well, how silly is that? Well, they don't understand the power of the death and the resurrection of the Lord. They only know of death, and they know of the power that death has, but not the power that one would have over death. So, you can look at the false teachers of our day. The false teachers of our day, what do they focus upon? Well, a true teacher will focus upon a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Word of God. A false teacher will pervert the Word of God or not even present the Word of God, present a lot of good ideas of mankind, but it will always go towards their worldly needs or desires. I wouldn't even say needs, but their worldly desires. It'll appeal to that. Why? Because that draws crowds. And what do crowds draw? Crowds draw more bigger offering. And you see the, well, they're described so many different ways in the Scriptures. But two main things that seem to have prevailed throughout the years are the health and wealth movement that is out there. False teacher, you come into the kingdom of God, you'll have health. I haven't seen that. Matter of fact, I've seen the opposite. 
I've seen the opposite in some of the things my wife and I have struggled with. I've seen the opposite in people that I've made visitations for. One of their proof texts is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he, speaking of Jesus Christ, his coming, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Well, yes, that is true, but you have to take that, receive that, speak it in the proper context. Now, we would go to a commentary, and the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Peter uses this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23-25, through 25, it says, "...who when he was reviled did not revile in return," speaking of the Lord, "...when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. To himself he bore our sins in his own body on a tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness." by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray. That means you were sinners, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And so what that tells me in context of 1 Peter, Isaiah, those stripes that we were healed, we were set free from sin. It speaks nothing of sickness and all of that. That's just part of the condition because because sin is out there. And then as far as wealth, Well, there was that one man who stored up many goods, but what did the Lord refer to him as? He referred to him as a fool. Why? Because his focus was upon wealth, and his focus was not upon the Lord. And so, these false teachers, they try to tickle ears through those things which mankind is really seeking after. Because again, you know, if if I only had wealth, I've had it made. How many times have you thought that or said that? Or even ask a sick person, if I only have health, then I would have it made. No, if you have Jesus Christ, then you have eternal life. And what more do you really want? What more is there? Talk to somebody who is sick, and they would give all of their wealth for just a little longer. And how much more so if they understood eternal life? And so, again, Jesus is offering this lady the kingdom of God, and she's just thinking the best. She's not going to have to walk out to a well every single day. Romans chapter 8, verses 5-6, through six, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so this life, I have to keep it in proper perspective. We, we talked about this a little bit on, on Sunday morning as we were in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and and 10, we, we were talking about finances and the proper perspective of those things. I need to go out and I need to make a living. There's no doubt about that. I have to work a job and I need to bring a paycheck home. The, the labor is worthy of his wages. There's just no doubt about those things. But I've got to keep these things in proper perspective. And Jesus Christ reigns supreme over every aspect of our lives. And if that is being the case, no, we are not the fool. But in actuality, we are the wise ones. We are the wise ones who have given ourselves to Christ because I've looked in the Bible, 10 out of 10 people one day will be on their deathbed. And you're not going to worry about how big your bank account is at that point. It's going to be all about what did you do with the knowledge of the gospel with Jesus Christ. Verse 16, so, oh, verse 15 first. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. 
This is Jesus going for the juggler. If you're going to preach the gospel to somebody, they need to have, well, they need to, there needs to be the necessity for the gospel. And really, the first thing that we do when we preach the word is to show people that they have the necessity for the gospel. Why? Because they're sinners. Lady, you need this living water because you're dying, you're dying, you're drowning, if you will, in sin. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is exposing her beyond her ability to cover herself. The reason for man's exposure is though, well, it's so that sooner or later he would be covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And again, the perfect picture is Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, they realize they're sinners. Now, I think it's using the fig leaves figuratively, although I think it was reality. All of a sudden, there's shame there. There's shame because there's sin, there's sin, there's the knowledge of sin with just even one another. And so the fig leaves aren't even doing a good job. They've got to go hide in the bushes. And then there comes the Lord. Adam, where are you? And again, it's not like, where'd Adam go? I can't find him. He knew exactly where Adam was. The thing about it is, he wanted Adam to know exactly where he was. And Adam had to come to that place of admitting that he was a sinner. And he knew fig leaves, they're not covering. Lady, your fig leaves... They're not covering here. Your adultery is showing. Well, for Adam and Eve, it was a good thing. When he, he explained, or he repented, if you will, or at least admitted that he was a sinner, then what did God do? Then God provided him proper seat coverings, lambskin seat coverings, rather than figs, uh, fig leaf coverings. It was the proper thing. Why? We know that it all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that you can cover skin is through the letting of blood. We know Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood was going to wash us clean, wash our sins away. And so, as I've said so many times, I, would ima- I just kind of have this picture in my mind that as Jesus is slaying this, this Lamb, it had to be absolute terror in the heart of Adam. Because you have to realize this is the first time that he has ever seen anything die. He's never seen anything die before. He probably didn't even know the concept of death. Now, I've seen things die before. I've seen people die before. And it's ugly. It's an ugly thing to see it. And so, I can imagine if you've never seen it before, to see it before your eyes, and how hard that's got to be. And the idea here is, is Adam, because you sinned, it was necessary for this to happen. And it wasn't just going to happen here. But, well, you get into Genesis chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and death entered into the equation. And so, this lady is being brought to the point that she is going to admit, or have to admit, that she's a sinner. Lady, indoor plumbing is not your problem. Your problem is sin. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said, well, I have no husband, verse 18, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Again, Jesus is bringing her to a point. He's bringing her to the point of going on record. Because what do we do in our sinful condition? We're always doing the Adam and Eve thing. We're always trying to hide it. And the chief people that we try to hide it from is ourselves. And if you're hiding it from yourself, how are you ever going to admit it? 
if I was going to freely admit my sin, then it'd be a no, it would be not that big of a deal for somebody to witness to me and really me admit that I was a sinner. But we want to present ourselves as perfect people. We always do. We still do that even in the church. Uh, you know, it, it, sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get people to come in for counseling. Listen, you've been dealing with, yeah, well, you know what, because they don't want to talk about their sin. Because you know what's going to happen? Then Pastor Mike's going to know that they're a sinner. Well, I could probably tell them things that will curl their toes about my past life. I mean, we're all sinners. And we've all done things that we don't like to admit to ourselves, let alone somebody else. But there's the necessity. And there's the reality of it. And you need to go on record. And the idea is, is that confession, well, that confession would lead to repenting that in actuality would lead to sinning. I'm sinning but would lead to saving. Confession would lead to repenting, that would lead to saving. It's that repulsive place of our sinful state. It's so difficult to acknowledge, but so necessary to admit. And it has, the only way that can truly happen is with the total humbling of spirit, is to see yourself and to finally embrace the shame but it's the shame, it's the humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord that is going to be lifting you up. Why? Because acknowledgement is the advent of repentance which will lead to salvation for the one who commits to Christ. I cannot truly commit to Christ unless I first admit that I'm a sinner, repent of my sins. And what that does is that clears the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to enter into my life. Luke chapter 3, verse 3 And he, this speaking of John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Remember John the Baptist? He was preparing the way. He's preaching a doctrine of baptism for the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the doctrine that the Lord Jesus... What did Jesus preach? repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And unfortunately, we, the church in general, at times, we've kind of left the repentance thing out because we want everybody to be happy. We want everybody to come to Jesus and have Jesus in your heart. Well, you've got to deal with the ugly stuff. If you don't deal with the ugly stuff, then you're never really going to see the glory of God. You cannot bypass the ugliness to get to the glory you got to go through this God orde- these God-ordained steps. So in this woman, we see certain dynamics of a sinner. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're just going to kind of look at a couple of verses here, and we'll be back. But in Romans chapter 1, three dynamics of a sinner. The first dynamic of a sinner we see is the immoral person. Verses 18 through 23, this is the most obvious immoral person that could possibly be This is the person who completely misses the mark and really doesn't care. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That means they know that there's the truth out there, but they don't want to hear it. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, they suppress the truth. Why? Because the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They sear their conscience, so they suppress it. Verse 19, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
And so again, you know, remember that, that native on a desert island that everybody is so concerned about? You know, what about the native on the desert island? Who nobody, well, he's without excuse. Because it says here, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So that proverbial native on a desert island, he's got what is necessary through creation to at least seek God out. God will hold them responsible for that which he has the ability to know. Verse 21, because although they knew God, or they knew of God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Secondly, would be the moral person. That's what's looked at in verse 2, verses 1-3. through Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. For we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape judgment of God? You may think you're immoral, you're moral, But in the sight of God, none of us are moral apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the person who thinks that he is right before God because he holds himself to some moral standard. Unfortunately, according to what I just read, others cannot achieve that moral standard and neither can he. He rewards himself because he thinks he's lived up to his expectations sooner or later, assuming what he thinks to be a good person. But unfortunately, hell is going to be filled with good people, or at least people who thought they were good, but when they stand before the great white throne, they're going to realize they were not good enough. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus in rebuking the church at Laodicea, because you say I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We know that God's moral standard was not designed to make a person righteous, but so that a person would fail and then seek after the righteousness of God. And then thirdly, and this is where this woman is going as well, there is the religious person, verse 2, starting at verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So this is a direction, go ahead and turn back to John chapter 4, that the woman of the well, that she's going to be hidden in the sight of God. Maybe the subject of sin can change, she's thinking of my sin, to this argument that has been going on in the denominations or whatever it might be for Forever and ever. Denominations, in this case, are the Samaritans and the Jews. You know, you, you kind of go there with somebody and you expose their sin. Well, I would never go to a church. You guys are all filled with, with hypocrites. I went to a church once and, and you know what? Nobody said hi to me. or You know, they got all these little excuses, but I'm thinking, you're going to take that before the great white throne? Lord, I, I, I was there and I went and they were mean to me. And you know what Jesus is going to say? They hung me on a cross but I went there for you. And I did the most loving expression that could ever be done. And now, you, because these people were a little mean to you? And again, 
it, it breaks my heart when I hear those things, number one, because the church very possibly could have acted that way, but number two, this person is using that to ward off the gospel and to refuse a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this woman, again, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So now she's going to kind of try and ward off the conviction here. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Her argument falls apart when we biblically consider that religion does not save, and religious arguments are absolutely no excuse before God. As she's standing before Jesus Christ, which I, I've stood before the Jesus Christ and given such an argument before in an unsafe state, and again, most of us have here. We've come before the Lord and we'll, we'll bring up whatever the excuse may be, but really what we're doing is we're just making a smokescreen because we've just been revealed as the sinners that we are. But notice that the Lord is not going to give up. Verse 23, or I'm sorry, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. That's all going to be obliterated, if you will. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers... Now, when he's talking true worshipers, this would be a biblically true worshiper, or a true worshiper in the sight of God, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. How is a holy God to be worshipped? Well, first of all, in spirit. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, if you look in your Bible there, the word spirit is lowercase s. At least it should be in your Bible. That means that the translators did not believe that he was talking about the Holy Spirit, when he said worship in spirit, but he was talking about the spirit of man. I'll get into what that is in just a bit. But in mine, verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. That's capital S. It's related to God. Who worship Him must worship in spirit, small s, because it's related to man. So how are we to worship the Lord in spirit? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, we saw it about a year ago when we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. So He's talking about the totality of a person. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this context of worshiping God, well, I can't worship God in this body, at least this body alone. And what I mean by that is, Works have never saved, and my works are not a form of worship to God in an unsaved state. Of myself, I cannot worship God with this soul. Your soul is your personality. It's the person who you are, and emotions can be temporary, and they can be so contrived. It's essential, though, body, soul, and spirit, that true worship of God is from our spirit. Again, what's your spirit? Your spirit is that, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-7, through 7, I'm not going to turn there, But your spirit is that which was formerly dead, but at the moment of salvation was made alive. Your spirit is that which you fellowship with God with. God is spirit, and so 
It's that portion of me that God has made alive at my moment of salvation where I now have fellowship with the Lord. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing because this body sooner or later is going to fall apart. As far as my soul, as far as my personality, believe it or not, I'm not always the joyful, cheerful guy that you see up here. It's my wife laughing back there. But as far as my spirit, my spirit is hidden with the Lord. And so those who worship must worship in spirit. You must be brought spiritually alive. Because see, if it was just body and soul, then your dog could worship the Lord. But what is your dog missing? Your dog is missing a spirit. Your dog has body and soul. You, you know, if you have a dog, your dog probably has a personality. I've had different dogs, and they've all had different personalities, all had different bodies, different kinds of dogs, but not one of them, not one of them, not a single one had spirit. Spirit is that which only we have, and God has caused it to come alive upon salvation. Okay, so spirit. Then secondly, how am I to worship the Lord? I am to worship the Lord in truth. Now, in the Apostle John's writings, he gives us three examples of what absolute truth is. Absolute truth, pure truth. The absolute definition of truth, three different places. It has to do with the Trinity, because this is important. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, the last part. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That would make sense. The Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is truth, because... He's what causes me to understand and know truth. And that in John 17, 17, the Lord is praying to the Father. And He asks the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The Spirit is truth. And from the Father proceeds truth. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. So if one of them is truth, all of them is truth, but... I've just given you three proof texts that God is completely truth. And so, if I'm truly going to worship the Lord, it's done in the Spirit. In the Spirit, now, we have different vehicles in which we worship. We worship God through reading, through praying, through singing, and just so many other different ways. But I, I must be filled with the Holy Spirit. It must be based upon the Word of God and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that way, I know and that I have a confidence that I am in the will of God, truly worshiping the Lord. Now, I can contrast this with ways that I, I don't even want to say ways that I used to worship Him because I was just doing duty for a Sunday morning when I used to go to church before I was saved. But it was void of the Word of God, void of the Holy Spirit, and it was definitely void of Jesus Christ. But of course it was. I was spiritually dead. I was not going to be able to worship the Lord in spirit and truth not until I came into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Any other means by which God is worshipped is based upon deception, because these are the biblical means by which God is worshipped. Verse 25, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And those words just had a penetrate her heart because how else would he have known everything that he had just told her with her husbands with the person he was living with and all of those things she tried to ward it off she tried to change the subject but he just kept bringing back coming back with these truths these truths well this living water 
that caused a change in her life. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, we thank You, Lord, that because of Your graciousness, because of Your mercy, because of what You accomplish, that, Father, we can safely come before You and say, forgive me, I'm a sinner. That we can admit that truth and that reality on the day that we were saved, but even, Father, as we need that continuous cleansing, as we are soiled by the flesh and the world and and all of that that comes with it, that, Lord, I can come before You and repent of my sins, and I know what comes there. It's that fountain. It's that fountain of that blood that has washed me as white as snow. It's that fountain that never ends. It's that fountain that never dries up. And so, Father, we just thank You for Your great grace and Your amazing mercy that continues to work in our lives daily. Just as truly, Lord, as You met Nicodemus, as You met this woman at the well, You met us and You continue to meet others through us this day. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who are found faithful in this work. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who is struck with the reality of their sin today, I pray, Father, that they would truly have a heart to take ownership of it, to understand, I did do this. This is who I am, or this is what I have done. But, Lord, I also pray that they would give it over to You. Because, Lord, You have told us You will take our sins as far as the east is from the west. I can't do anything with them other than carry that burden. Lord, You'll take that burden from us. But, Father, I pray, if there is anybody here that is of that way, that, Lord, they would truly seek You out. That in that inner person of their heart, that, Father, they would repent of their sins and that they would believe in You. Believe that You are able to take it away. Believe that You died because they are sinners. And Father, they would become spiritually awakened and Lord, enter into glory with You. So Father, once again, we just thank You for this evening. We thank You for this fellowship that we have together. I pray for those who have come out tonight that You would bless them and bring them home safely. I pray for those who we prayed for that You would move in their lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. Will you all stand, please?